Welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand, where we celebrate the triumphs of people who have overcome their own life's challenges and made our world better. People who have taken life's lemons and made lemonade. I am Heidi, your host. Thank you for joining me. David, welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand. I am so excited to talk to you. It was so great to meet you recently at our 30-year high school reunion. It was great to know we went to high school together and I knew you a little bit in high school. We weren't necessarily hanging out friends, but it was really cool to reconnect with you at our reunion. And I appreciated being able to talk to you and hear more about you. So tell us three things about yourself. Well, I'm a software developer and I do like music. Uh, I was in the Riverton Metropolitan Orchestra for a number of years and then the Riverton City Jazz Band. Um, I had to take a hiatus when my last son was born because things, things just got too busy. So I have, of course, a wife and five children, six if you count the first one, and she didn't make it. And I guess that's what we're going to be talking about a bit today. Exactly. That's kind of how you introduced yourself to me at the reunion. And I'm totally dating ourselves by saying it was our 30 year high school reunion, but still, like, let's be proud of that. That was awesome. <laughs> but yes, that's how you introduced yourself. And I'm just like, I have to hear this story. So please take me back and tell me your lemon to lemonade story. Okay. Um, so when I was a newlywed with my wife, uh, we lived in a basement apartment. So while we were dating, um, we discussed a lot and we discuss a couple goals. One is we both came from families uh, that were large and we wanted a lot of children. And then also my wife told me that she wanted to have home births with a midwife because that's how she idolized her older sister and that's how she did it with all of her children. While we were dating, I would sometimes serenade her on the guitar. When we got engaged, I made up this song for my wife and played the guitar for her. And it was meant to just be between us, you know? But she liked it. She wanted me to play it at our wedding dinner. Well, what could I say? You know, so I thought it was a bit cliche to do that and cheesy. But so I played it and I was just kind of cringing inside the whole time. And she had this idea that I could make up songs. And so as newlyweds, I would occasionally get out the guitar and we just mess around. And so anyway, my wife got pregnant after three months of us being married and so we made arrangements with the, with the midwife, started taking birthing classes. And, and that was actually kind of embarrassing <laughs> because, you know, as a, a macho man, I don't want to have to pretend. I mean, she had to pretend to be in labor and I had to pretend to give, you know, support and coaxing words. And it's like, well, I mean, in private, yeah, that's one thing. But in public with this teacher, it was just a little awkward. But anyway, I saw the birthing videos and stuff and the one thing that came from that is I realized, okay, this, this birthing at home thing is, is easy. I mean, I mean, it's doable. I mean, my part's easy. The wife does all the work, right? So I just have to be there, support her, you know, put my hand on her shoulder, hold her hand, give encouraging words, but not distract her concentration. And so at least it set me at ease because I grew up with, you know, it's supposed to happen in a hospital. And so I'm a little uncomfortable. And then eventually it came time to find out the gender of the baby. And so this probably sounds low budget, but there's this guy at the mall who, <laughs> who made a business of um, making all this memorabilia for the pregnancy, including finding the gender and taking ultrasound pictures. And so we went there and 
it was kind of weird because he went on and on with this ultrasound and it took quite a while and without telling us the gender. And I said, oh, I guess it just takes a while. And, and then after it seemed like a while of just going through all these different parts of the ultrasound, um, he just turns off the machine. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And, and he told us uh, we need to go to the hospital and he wouldn't tell us the gender. We asked, well, can you tell us the gender? He says, no, you need to go to the university, like go to the university hospital. We're like, oh, okay. So we're just kind of stunned and um, it just kind of so abrupt, you know? And so we went there and of course they did another ultrasound. They answered some questions, but not a lot. It was always, well, the doctor needs to tell you that, you know? And, and so we're kind of kept in suspense. We did find out we're having a girl. So that was kind of cool. Ushered, it, ushered us to this other room and so we could talk to a genetic counselor and had some questions answered, but still we're kept in suspense. You know, the doctor will have to tell you that. And we did learn that the chances are this wouldn't, whatever it was, wasn't gonna happen again. So after being kept in suspense for what seemed like forever, the doctor finally came in. He told us the diagnosis and basically it was that our daughter had a severe case of spina bifida where the spine did not close all the way, way up high by the skull. And so a lot of fluid leaked into a pouch or an encephalocele, but also it appeared that there's a lot of brain matter missing from her skull. And so a lot of the brain matter more than likely went into the encephalocele. And at first we're thinking there's a lot of unknowns at this point. And then he told us that there's zero chance our daughter can survive uh, birth because this condition is not compatible with life outside the womb. But I think what made us feel a little, well, it just put us at ease a little bit with that is that it was one unknown that was removed. And now we could focus on the other unknown. Okay, now we're gonna have a daughter who's gonna die. And so it's just, you know, just bombarded with all these different emotions from different sides. So we had a follow-up visit with a doctor and he felt that we should abort the pregnancy early. Well, this was disturbing to us for two reasons. One, we didn't want to abort the baby because my, um, my wife and I felt that if this, is my, if this is our daughter's only chance at life is in the womb, we want it to last as long as possible. And then second, a C-section might um, prohibit my wife's ability to have a lot of children and to have them naturally and, you know, going through the birth canal rather than through another C-section. You know, we said, we told him we wanted to have a second opinion. He said, great. Yeah, you should. So we met with him and he was right away. You could tell he was uh, just more empathetic, had a lot of sympathy uh, towards us. And we told him our goals that we want to have a natural birth, even at home, if we still can. Um, we don't want to be at a hospital where our daughter's just going to be whisked away and we don't get to spend time with her because we know she's going to die anyway. And because of that, we want to just spend time with her and enjoy her. And he felt, he assured us that in his professional opinion, that yes, she should be able to have a natural birth. The encephalocele on the back of her head should not prohibit her from coming through the birthing canal. It should be soft and malleable and, and uh, we should be able to have future children uh, naturally and everything. So, so that set us at ease. So we just, we now we knew we had a game plan and what we had a plan for. So we kind of entered a new phase where we, we didn't need the doctors anymore. We just focused on the midwife and we didn't, I guess we still kind of had the birthing classes, but that came <laughs> um, somewhat to an abrupt end. 
but I should explain, I always wanted three daughters for some reason, just before I even got married, I just thought it'd be cool to have three daughters and have their names be faith, hope, and charity. I thought, I just always thought that would be cool. But we believe that when children die before reaching the age of accountability, they are sinless. So they get a free pass to God's kingdom. So since our child was extra special, um, we decided to name her Charity, since that's the greatest of the virtues. And we gave her a middle name of Joy after my wife's middle name. So Charity was born five and a half weeks early. And I, being in the community orchestra, I actually had a concert the night she was born. Um, and I had a solo that night. And so it was all going kind of well. And I didn't know she was going to be born yet. But my wife told me that the baby was really active during the concert. It was kicking a lot. And so I thought, oh, that's cool. Maybe she liked the music. Well, we get home and uh, my wife dresses for bed and she's sitting on the bed and, and all of a sudden her water breaks. And I felt bad for her in a way. Uh, my heart just went out to her because she started shaking like a, a scared rabbit, you know, knowing that this within 24 hours, the baby's going to come. She'll be in labor and, and she's kind of nervous for this. You know, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a big physical physically demanding ordeal to go through and so she's just feeling all these weird sensations and so I kind of had to take over as the role of the doctor and I checked her and and the baby was already crowning and so <laughs> now I'm the one in denial like for just a second I thought we're all alone no help uh, you know I don't want to do this <laughs> be the one that has to do everything you know where's the midwife there's no time for that the baby's coming but that was only for a second. And then the, uh, my body just kind of, my whole system just kind of went on high alert. You know, like if there's a traffic accident and now I'm the one in charge of directing traffic during all this and, you know, CPR and everything, it just kind of came over me. And so I just said, okay, dear, let, I had to move her from the hard floor in the bathroom to a softer floor in, in the bedroom. And uh, I just told her, okay, uh, you can squat down if you want or, or get on hands and knees like, you know, they taught us. And and whatever you're comfortable with and just trying to support her. And then the baby just kind of came. And also I knew that just the birth itself would manipulate or, or push against that encephalocele. And, and I knew there's no way she could die anyway, or live anyway. The uh, legal, according to the legal definition of stillborn, I think in order to not be a stillborn, the baby has to take a breath. There are certain, certain things that have to happen in order to consider it to be a live birth. So technically, or I should say legally, uh, I guess she would be a stillborn, but our EMT neighbor said that she had good color in her skin and face and everything. So she wasn't like most stillborns. Um, and my wife said she was kicking on the way out. And so, so in one way, one sense, it was a live birth in a legal sense, it was a still stillbirth. So it was, it was kind of an awkward thing. We didn't know what to call it in a way. Um, so now we, we had a lot going on. Um, the midwives came and uh, took over and everything. So there's a lot of normal stuff that happened that the midwife did. Of course, a lot of stuff that she didn't have to do. And then we had uh, just a few, a few close relatives and, and friends come over that night. And my wife and I enjoyed her. And there are a lot of things my wife would miss out on. You know, when everyone left and she went back and forth from just enjoying her, loving her, checking out her perfectly formed body, except for the encephalocele on back and her cute feet and everything and, and then crying, you know, and so we spent that night with her um, alone. And, and then in the morning, 
we had a lot to do. Um, I had a call mortuary, called all the family. And so I had to make arrangements with our Bishop and he was great. He, when he found out we named her charity, he, uh, he quoted that scripture, you know, charity never faileth. And he said, and she didn't fail, you know, she passed her test of mortality. Um, she makes it to heaven basically. And, and also in our church, the, there's a worldwide women's organization called the Relief Society. It, it, it does so much good throughout the world. And the local Relief Society president for our congregation, she came over and I was a little, I mean, I remember feeling a little awkward, like how is she going to feel about this baby, you know, and cause it's not like a live baby. And, but she was just so amazing. She came over like it was her own granddaughter and just loved her, kissed her and, and all any awkwardness barriers or something, all just came down. And, um, you know, the, the ability she had just to, to uh, break the, breach those barriers and, and be support was, was amazing. And so she, she made arrangements for other women to provide meals for us during this time. So we didn't have to cook and, and deal with that. And then also they wanted to make a luncheon for the, after the graveside service for the funeral. Um, and so I had a lot to do. I had to make, get a head count for that. Uh, I had to make arrangements for the funeral and with uh, my Bishop, but also the uh, mortuary, letting all my relatives know and tell everyone about the baby blessing he wanted to attend. And, and I didn't really get a chance to mourn because I was always, I was on high alert. You know, there's always something else to do for my daughter, always something to do for my wife and something to prepare for. And I knew I would see my, I mean, eventually when the mortician took the baby, I, I knew I'd see her again. Cause now we're going to go put her clothes on and then we're going to see her at the viewing. So there's always some other thing. Um, and so because of that, I, I always felt like, you know, I'm, I'm the one in charge. I have to go and, and there's always something to do for me. Um, so it kept my body on kind of crisis mode, high alert after the baby blessing, waiting for the mortuary, the mortician to come and, and uh, take the baby. And during that time, a lot of people were gathered around in the bedroom, around the bed. My wife was sitting up in bed, holding a baby and giving turns to people holding the baby. And, and every time the door would open, there'd be this pause and my wife would, you know, wait. And then we'd say, Oh, someone brought flowers. And then she'd go off happy and talking again with everyone there. And then the door would open again, be this awkward pause. And a relative would come in and we'd say, Oh, it's so-and-so. Oh, can okay. you go on talking? And, and finally there came the time when we were told that it's the mortician. And then she just kind of broke down and crying then because now she knows she has to give up her baby. And, and he was, he was nice. He came into the room and as it turns out, he went to high school with my mother-in-law. And so they, they chatted and, and he was just really respectful. Just let us uh, explain what we wanted to explain to him and, and talk. And, and he just kind of sat there kind of somber looking and while my wife kind of said her goodbyes, I guess, to the baby and just kind of stalling for time. And, and it came a point where, you know, my wife just realized this is it. And, and she holds the baby close to her one last time and closes her eyes and, and then puts the baby in, in both hands and just stretches them out and hands them out to the mortician. But in a way, it was kind of, looking back, it was kind of like the perfect pitiful scene, like on a movie. I mean, it was sad, but 
it all was perfect and crescendoed into the here, you know, this woman who just finally reaches this uh, decision that, okay, now I, I can give my baby away. But it botched, the, the, the mortician botched it because it was right in front of his face, but he didn't realize that he needs to take the baby now. So I don't know if his focus was just three inches from his face or he was off thinking or, so there are these awkward seven seconds where my wife's arms are extended and I couldn't go around because there's so many people, you know? So it's just like, uh, you know, life is like that. You know, it was like perfect scene from a movie and it, it, you know, it wasn't a perfect scene anymore. It, you know, it was anticlimactic. And so the mortician finally realizes, oh, everyone's waiting for me to take the baby. And he comes up and, and takes it, wraps her in a, a blanket and somberly and respectfully takes the baby away. And, and then we also made arrangements to get moldings of her feet. Um, and also with my wife and I holding hands and the baby's hand at the same time, kind of. Um, like one of our fingers was in her hand and and our hands were clasping each other. And so we got a molding of that. My body was still on high alert and I couldn't just calm down and, and have time to mourn. Um, I, was, I was just the guy in charge of managing the crisis, you know, and, and uh, and my wife had a lot of questions, you know, what happens when a, a stillborn or close to stillborn or newborn dies? Is that baby yours? Like in the resurrection, what happens? And so she did a lot of, res or a lot of uh, research and found that some church leaders talked about that, that uh, as soon as a woman knows she's pregnant, you know, that baby's hers basically. And so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that were consoling for my wife. And she wanted to share that at the, at the funeral. And um, so again, I had to prepare my remarks and there's always just something to do. I dedicated the grave. As we, it was time to go from the, the graveside. I didn't really get a chance to grieve right away then either. Cause my wife had one last uh, moment where her, her whole body just kind of wilted. I guess she just draped herself on the casket and just was crying. And she had a rose in her hand and looking back, you know, we got some pictures. It, someone took a picture of that. It was actually really, sadly beautiful scene. Um, but again, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I wish, I kind of wished I could have a moment to just do that too and grieve, but I couldn't, I, I just had my hand on my wife and trying to comfort her. And then we got up and as we turned away from her to walk to the, the car to go for the luncheon, I realized that there is no next time. I'm not going to see her next time to dress her for the funeral. I'm not going to see her next time for the viewing. I'm not going to see her next time this was goodbye, everything had been done. Everything was done. And my whole system just kind of shut down in a way, or that, that high intensity, it just kind of shut down and, and that's when it hit me. So that's when the pain first came. And so I was finally able to, to start to reflect on things and, and miss her, miss my daughter and, and go through all the, all the scenes and, and, uh, but still, there are little thoughts that occurred to me, entered my mind that I could feel guilty for this. I could feel guilty for that. Or um, mainly it was just the pain of losing a daughter and the whole experience. All the experience leading up to this just kind of hit me all at once in one compressed moment. And the next week, uh, we, neither of us worked. We just kind of took time off. And, and every time we'd leave home or come back, of course, the, the cemetery's right there. And my, you know, my wife would cry. But as the week went on, I noticed that my wife, her crying as she passed the, the cemetery almost seemed forced. I, I kind of, 
could sense that as he began to heal and the pain became less, that she almost felt guilty that the pain was less. Almost like if she wasn't feeling pain every time she passed the cemetery, she wasn't giving her just due to our daughter. Like she wasn't, didn't love her enough. You know, the, the pain she felt was evidence of her love for her, her baby. And so I, I wanted to explain to her that, um, you know, you don't have to hold on to the pain, that the pain isn't the same as your love, basically. So I could tell she was struggling with that. There's this weird transition of when pain and tragedy and love are all in close proximity. But as you begin to heal, the pain withdraws from proximity to those feelings of love. And, and, uh, and so that's an awkward transition. You know, it begs some questions or raises some questions. Am I allowed, if I let go of the pain, am I allowed to still grieve? Am I allowed to still cry whenever I want to, if I let go of the pain? Do I still love my loved one if I let go of the pain? So it's just awkward. And so I could tell she was going through this awkward transition. For me, for experiencing my pain, I, I, uh, I related to what the Savior has done for us. I realized that, you know, I'm so fortunate to know that there's a resurrection, that, the, that what Christ did for us, the, the sting of death is swallowed up. That doesn't mean we don't experience pain, but we don't have to experience the absolute hopelessness that comes when there, there's nothing, there is no hope, there is no resurrection. There, you know, And so I, I thought, uh, what Christ did, now that is suffering. And he suffered for us, so we don't have to suffer that terrible hopelessness that would otherwise come. Um, so while I'm filling with, filled with sorrow and even pain, I don't have to suffer like that. That's, that's suffering. I, I don't have to suffer like that. And so that was a thought that I was, that was uh, uh, feeling at the time. Oh, and I, I should back up a bit. Uh, during this time, I'm not sure exactly when, but sometime uh, before the funeral, like early on in the, this whole experience, my wife told me that she wanted me to write a song for my daughter. And I thought, okay, so I ripped off a song about Hawaii, you know, just with a, a simple 50s style song. That, you know, that's one thing, but this, this is kind of a tall order, you know, but somehow she got this idea that, you know, hey, he writes songs. So that's just what I do. <laughs> I'm not a composer, but, but at the time I, I just had so much going on. I just put that on the shelf. I, I, I'm not in a position where I can even address that right now. So I just put that on the shelf and knew I'd get around to it later. Well, now enough time had passed and, and we decided to go to the local high school and just kind of decompress, get some exercise. My wife walked around the track and um, I did a sprint workout. So after one of the longer sprints, of course I had more time to recover. It had always been in the back of my mind, but it just came to me that, you know, I guess I need to start working on thinking about that song and now is as good a time as ever, but Again, it struck me that that's a tall order. Um, what could I possibly say? You know, I buried my baby today. And that turned out to be the first line. And I just kind of sighed to myself, just like, happened all so fast. And then, then the next line just came. It seems that her first breath was destined to be her last. As I, I would run and then I'd walk, I, I did just kind of chew on the last lines I got. And then more lines would come and it just kept coming. And by the time we got home, I had the basic melody and all the, all the words 
done just in my head. So I wrote them down and, you know, that first day that I came up with the song, I told my wife and, and she loved it and the words and um, I just sang it on the way to work that I just started going to work, you know, that day. And, and it just kind of gave my, I guess my healing process, something to focus on an anchor to guide the resolution of, of, uh, of the pain and, and, and uh, just kind of helped it along. And, and then, so later I have, I have a brother who has a really good voice and he was taking voice lessons from a voice coach. And one of his other friends that also took lessons from the same coach, um, his name was Steven Nelson, um, just kind of a phenom. He, he just graduated high school and, and uh, he's one of these guys who, well, I mean, not like they're common, but I guess they are there, but he, he can just hear things in his head and play them. Whatever he can hear in his head, he can just play. So my brother got him to help him out. And he's since gone on to a, a career composing music in the music industry. And, but he was still just out of high school. And my brother got this song for me, the basic melody and the words. And I put him on the sheet music. And, and he asked Stephen if he'd help him kind of put together a recording. And so they, they put together a beautiful interpretation of it. It was kind of an amateur um, recording, but it is all right. My wife would listen to the song over and over and, and she loved it. Of all the memorabilia we got, and we got a bunch, someone volunteered to make a DVD for us and, and different things. And this one seemed to have most impact because it was most readily available. She could play it over and over and over again. It wasn't like a DVD where you had to sit down in front of a TV, spend a lot of time. She could take it with her. We shared it with our friend, our family and maybe some close friends show hey look what look what Phil did for us you know my brother and and his friend but then they they would know of people that had some loss and they'd ask hey can I can we share Charity's song with uh so and so and said sure and and there's not a lot we do in society for those that have had have had a stillborn you know we do funerals for people who've died but when someone's had a stillborn it just kind of gets brushed under the carpet, you know, or under the rug. And so there's not a lot of closure people can get sometimes. And so it turns out this song really resonated with a lot of people who had lost either with a stillborn or a newborn or even a two-year-old or, and so the song with my wife, it, the message connected with her more and two themes in the song. One that, because of what Christ did, I know I'll see my baby again. And, and so that's what he did, that's suffering. We don't have to suffer like that. Yes, we have pain, um, sorrow, but because of what he did, we, we know we eventually we'll have a resolution to all that. We'll have a happy ending. Might have to wait a while, but he will wipe away our tears. We will see our loved ones again in the resurrection. But also the other thing was, um, you can let go of the pain because that's not your loved one. You keep your love, you keep your loved one and you're not slighting your loved one because the pain goes away. You're not obligated to hold on to the pain. You can hold on to the love and, and that's what that remains. Pain is temporary. Your love is forever. Your loved one is forever. And so those are the two themes that just kind of came to me from the desire of wanting to, um, console my wife and also reflect my own thoughts at the time, my own, with my own experience. So 
it was kind of nice to see that the song not only helped us, it helped me in that, you know, I was able to put stuff that I experienced into it, but, and also for my wife, but it was nice that it was able to help other people. And especially poignant was I had a friend whose daughter died at a swimming pool at a family gathering. And, uh, and that was, you know, it was so hard. And so I knew my, my song was geared towards our situation and everyone's situation is different. Everyone's grief is different, but I, I gave him a copy of the song, but I also felt I needed to, an explanation. Uh, so I kind of wrote him a, a letter and uh, explaining the themes of the song, but also kind of a, an essay on pain, the nature of it, how it parallels physical pain, emotional pain can, uh, healing process, that awkward transition you go through when the pain starts to subside, how do you deal with that? Why sometimes you can be driving down the road, you see the beautiful mountains or you smell something and bam, it hits you. Uh, why, why that happens? I, I developed this uh, kind of a theory about that. Everyone's pain and grief is different, but I just want to give you these thoughts just in case you find them useful. Well, then my sister-in-law had a sister who had, I believe it was a stillbirth late in the process, like just before it was time to, or, you know, before the baby was due and so she was kind of devastated and I thought those same thoughts I gave my friend before would be helpful to her. So I kind of reworked that letter into a generic uh, letter to the bereaved, gave that to her and, and, you know, she found that helpful. And to wrap it all up, I, I think if I could just share just a couple excerpts from that letter to kind of wrap things up. So one of the things I wrote in that was when tragedy strikes, the pain sorrow and love are all experienced in close proximity. In time, the pain goes away. As pain withdraws from close proximity to sorrow and love, we can experience a strange transition. This withdrawal of pain begs the following questions. If I let go of the pain, am I letting go of my right to grieve? If I let go of the pain, am I letting go of my right to shed tears whenever I feel like it? If I let go of the pain, am I forgetting my loved one? If I let go of the pain, am I letting go of my love? So unanswered these questions can make it difficult to let go of the pain. So then I went on with my theory of, you know, why pain comes unexpectedly. And, and then I ended with, when we can objectify pain, when we can hold it in our hands like a ball and examine it, when we can understand it, we can accept that pain comes and goes when it wants to, not when we want or expect it to. We can cope with it. And finally, when it has run its course, we can let it go. My final thought is that it's important to respect that while there are similarities between everyone's grief, everyone's grief is unique. So Charity Song and the Letter to the Bereaved doesn't resonate with everyone, and that's okay. On the other hand, I think the reason the song, along with the letter for a few people I've shared that with, has been helpful is because while everyone's experience and grief is unique, we are all human. And therefore, everyone's grief has some similarities that allow us to relate to another with empathy. That's basically my, my story and how 
I guess the song title came up, the song title is I'm not suffering. And then an alternate title is charity song, but that's how that song came about and, and was able to be of some help to some people that the song resonated with. Ooh. And it's a beautiful song and we are going to play that at the end of this interview so people can be able to hear how touching it is and what an effect it has been. And thank you, David. Like I really have nothing to add or nothing to ask. You have shared a beautiful touching story. I know this happened a long time ago as well for you. And you have been able to share this song with so many people to be able to uplift them and encourage them and give them that hope that they don't have to suffer. They don't have to feel that pain. And so thank you. Thank you for sharing it with me today. You're welcome, it was a pleasure. Seems that her first breath was destined to be her last. And while my wife is grieving, I'm still believing that life can be so real. And as I turn to leave her, I start to grieve her, cause the pain just seems so real. And although I'm sorrowing. I'm not suffering Because Jesus gave his gift of love My baby singing up above Somehow I don't feel strong enough But I'm not suffering to the pain But my sweet baby she still remains When I said goodbye to the pain Her love and memory still remain I spent my day dreaming Of little fingers and her toes The extent of my sorrow My Lord Jesus only I'm sorry, I'm not suffering because Jesus gave his gift of love. My baby's singing up above. Somehow I don't feel strong enough, but I'm not suffering. Suffering, but I'm not suffering.
hold you the pain Cause my sweet baby she still remains I'll say goodbye to the pain Cause her love still remains Her love still remains And I'm not suffering Well, I should probably uh, just mention we have gone on to have, like I said, uh, five children. I did get the faith, hope, and charity that I always wanted. Um, we named our uh, second child, she was a daughter, Ava Hope. And Ava comes from Eve. It's the, it's the Greek derivative of the Hebrew name Eve, which means life. So life hope, or hope also means expect expectancy so life expectancy or life hope I thought that was a very appropriate name um, after losing our first one um, and then the next one uh, was Ivy Faith so we stuck with the middle names on you know the hope and the faith we had two other two boys and another girl as well so it's been great we, we've had a full family and they all know and love uh, Charity their oldest sister you know one of the things when when we had the name and blessing that occurred to me and that I mentioned while giving the blessing was that, uh, you know, now she has ancestry, mortal ancestry. So that means all the people that went before in her ancestry, she has all those people, they have an interest in her. And now she also has an interest in uh, what happens with her siblings and her parents. And, and uh, you know, we've had some special moments that, that I think that's uh, been evident. Um, but yeah, so just just so your um, listeners know, we we've had a we had this experience, but then we've been able to go on and, and have a good family with with healthy children and and uh, sort of things kind of. Not that our lives are that's the end, but that I guess the story, as far as our purposes today, has had a good happy ending. So. It does have a happy ending. You took those lemons and made lemonade, and then you passed it around, and I just appreciate that. So thank you. You're welcome. I would have wanted that on there. So thank you for adding that in because it, it's beautiful that you went on to be able to have a big full family that you wanted and healthy children and so grateful for that and grateful for your experience that you can share it. I'm just, as we share with others, that's the only way we can strengthen and uplift them. And I just appreciate you doing that. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, it uplifts us as well to, to share. So yeah, it really does, doesn't it? just to be able to keep her alive in your mind like that too. Keeps her right there close all the time. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm glad we met at the reunion again. You know, I think, uh, I guess we really didn't talk too much in high school, but yeah. I'm glad we got to talk at the reunion, so. I know, me too. It's been so good to reconnect, so thank you. That's awesome. Hopefully more people come to the real reunion, uh, late one uh, next year, so. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Next year, so. We need it. We need to reconnect. This is what it's all about. This is what happens when people connect. So it's a beautiful thing. So thank well, you. Yeah, we've all 
had all these years everyone has all these stories of life that they've experienced and so it's nice to to um, catch up and find out what, what's happened to other people and yes what their experience has been like there's a plug go to your high school reunions <laughs> it's really <laughs> it's really a beautiful thing you can reconnect with people that you didn't even know you lost touch with so it's awesome <laughs> thank you all right